Let's begin with a view of the city uh, with St. Paul's in the foreground and you can see all the towers of the city behind and the shard to one side and it's all glorious in the sunset. But is the sun setting over all of this is the question. We know just on a daily basis just how concerned everybody is with the Brexit deal, whether we're going to get a deal, what kind of deal, and the impact that that has already been having on the city, on financial institutions, on educational institutions, on companies and so on. Uh, we've heard about some companies who were saying that they were going to be moving out, and there seems to be some sort of debate about whether we're entering into a national crisis uh, and all the... the um, arguments and protests for a new vote. So is this a challenge or is it an opportunity? Um, I did hear of a bishop one day who was staying in a hotel where they'd obviously just had the management training staff and he went up to, the, went up to his room, came back down again and said to the desk, I'm sorry, there's a problem with my room. And the desk clerk said, we don't have any problems in this hotel, bishop, just opportunities. He said, <laughs> he said well, you can call it that, but there's a naked woman in my room. <laughs> So, is this a challenge or is this an opportunity? And, and clearly, people's livelihoods are being threatened. Some 25 to 30% of my students at King's are European Union students. Uh, about 2,500 of our staff are European nationals who are obviously very anxious about whether they're going to have a job, all those sorts of questions. And we have no idea... Uh, how many European students might actually come to King's in the future once they start having to pay uh, non-European fees. Meanwhile, we've been cooperating with European universities for over 40 years. We're, all, we're in a major, major research in healthcare, in uh, the military, in um, law, etc., etc. And increasingly, British universities are being cut out of new research deals because we can't be part of it. So there's this it's a, this is therefore a hugely important topic. But of course it's actually been a topic for great debate ever since the Occupy movement outside St Paul's uh, at the end of 2011. Uh, this was of course actually a mistake. Uh, their, their target was the stock exchange. Um, but as Jesus did say, uh, the children of darkness are wiser than the children of light. And the stock exchange had security and the cathedral didn't. So, so that's why they ended up um, as close to the stock exchange as they could get um, on the steps of the cathedral. Um, but somehow that attracted all sorts of... I was very interested when I was, was visiting, uh, going there, about how you know, lots of ordinary people had joined the usual uh, globalisation protesters. And much of the debate was about what is fairness, um, and there was a lot of people were using words like, you know, it ought, ought or ought not or should not be like this. And I always find it interesting where people get this innate sense of fairness and what ought to be or what should be from. And of course, it was a, in many ways protests about the banking and financial system as a whole. But because of the accident of being on the front steps of St. Paul's, it rapidly became associated with cathedrals and churches. And uh, the other Occupy camps around uh, the world started springing up uh, close to cathedrals and churches. 
And um, in early 2012, um, I was doing the Money, Sex, Power, Violence, and Meaning in Life lecture tour around the Anglican Communion, and I so wish I'd had a T-shirt made uh, <laughs> with, with all the dates on it. Um, uh, following on from the Lambeth Conference of Bishops in 2008, to be looking at these various topics. And it was quite interesting to discover that uh, this, these themes were coming up uh, time and time again in all the different places I went to. So in Washington, D.C., the, the lectures, I was doing some lectures on power, and there was a camp built in mid, down in Midtown. Um, I was very interested. I had to do, uh, it's, it's a tough job, but I was asked to go to an out-of-the-way diocese on my way to New Zealand, where nobody ever went, apparently, to do teaching. And uh, it turned out to be Hawaii. Um, and I thought it was a wonderful place. And I said to them, so you know, where do you go on holiday if you live in Hawaii? To which the answer was Las Vegas. Um, because actually they don't need um, beaches and things. And debt was a, the, probably the number one problem that the churches were dealing with among people in Hawaii, largely because they would go to Las Vegas and leave large amounts of their money there. And it was similarly, I noticed, in Australia and New Zealand. And when I got to Hong Kong, as I've said already, it, it, rather interestingly, the HSB Tower is on form with big legs, and there's a public plaza underneath. And so the camp was uh, there, un literally underneath the HSBC Tower. But St. Paul's Cathedral gave the protesters a religious dimension. I rather loved this picture that somebody took. I threw the money out the moneylenders for a reason. <laughs> um, it's an interesting question to ask, what did Jesus talk about most? I once uh, found myself preaching on a topic like this and asked, and I had my laptop set up with all the kind of, um, you could do searches on the Gospels, and I asked people, what did Jesus talk about most? And people said, you know, sex or drugs or rock and roll or whatever. Um, nobody actually got it right. And the answer is money. There are twice as many verses in the four Gospels about money than there are verses that contain the word love. Of course, Jesus talked a lot about love, but twice as many verses uh, are about issues to do with money, finance, poverty, and wealth than the verses containing love, which is an extraordinary statement. So the question obviously is, well, what would Jesus say and do now, and how can we use the New Testament today? So <clears throat> these issues of money, sex, power, violence, the meaning or the sanctity of life confront us in our daily life. And I'll be picking up uh, two others of them in the other lectures in February and April. Um, but many people in our society, inside and sometimes often even more outside the church, look towards the Bible and Jesus as a, a helping us with these crucial kind of experiences that we, we all have. And yet, let's be honest, the churches are in just some, as big a mess about these sorts of topics as society, if not more so. And what we need is a clear methodology for using the Bible today. You probably know the method of, that we used, the, which is called the Virgilian Lot, which people used to do with the books of Virgil, where you open the book and stab at it with your eyes closed, and that's a message to you from the gods. Well, the, there was one guy who opened the Bible and got the verse, Judas went and hanged himself, 
didn't like that one very much, so he shut his eyes, flicked through it again, had another stab and got go and do thou likewise. <laughs> so so as, a, as a method of reading the Bible, I don't recommend <laughs> just stab at, stabbing at it in the dark. But there is a big question, uh, therefore, about methodology. What is our method? How are we doing that? And so at uh, this first of three lectures, I want to begin the first section with a little word about method uh, before we actually get to question itself. And um, next week I'll be in the States for a big international conference on the Bible. And I'm afraid that... Do come in. <laughs> somebody, somebody. Okay. Um, the, uh, in, in the lovely hotel rooms, there's always a nice walnut or oak cabinet in the side. And I think, oh, good. It's going to be full of gin and tonic or something. And it's always just a television with... God knows how many channels and nothing worth watching. But somewhere in there, there will be a man with a very large Bible hitting the podium of the Bible and saying, the Bible says. Well, the Bible says is not an answer. Frankly, it's even an incorrect sentence. Uh, because the Bible is not a book of ethics. In fact, the Bible's not even a book, full stop. Uh, Ta Biblia, the word which gives us the word Bible in Greek, is plural. It means the books. And of course, it is a plurality of genres, authors, cultures. All the different books were put together over something like a thousand years. And given that diversity, it's amazing that the unity that one can find in that. And if you are a Christian or whatever, you will probably believe that in some form or other, the book is inspired by God, whether that's like Mozart's um, symphonies being inspired or, or something more. Um, and so actually, a better translation is the books or the scriptures. And so just simply to say the Bible says as though it was one monochrome uh, object with a single voice is not to be fair to it. And there are two problems about what we have to do, about how we read it. Uh, one is so-called cultural relativism, which is bridging the gap between then and now. Um, sometimes, not too often on Thought for the Day, but I'm afraid rather more often in parish churches, you will hear the, somebody rambling on about an Old Testament passage and my wife is an Old Testament scholar, so I have to be careful here, uh, about the patriarchs leading uh, their herds and their cattle and their wives and their concubines looking for water. And then the speaker will say, and I thought to myself, isn't that just like you and me? And you think, actually, how is it just like you and me? When was the last time you herded your wives, concubines, and all your cattle uh, down to the riverbank? Um, and so how do we bridge the gap between the culture of the ancient world and our culture today. We, we, we know, uh, even uh, with the globalization culture that we have, that different societies take in, in, interpret different signs and, or say hello or whatever in different kinds of ways. The other is what we call the contingency of issues. Um, it's very clear to me um, what I should do 
Uh, when I'm walking across uh, Waterloo Bridge to see the, the gentleman who's just walked in, who's my boss, <laughs> um, King's College London is an enormous university these days, and my office is on the Strand, and uh, the principal's office is on the other side of the river. And most of the business at King's is conducted on Waterloo Bridge because we're walking backwards and forwards all day, uh, bumping into tourists. I know precisely what to do if a Roman legionary bumps into me and asks me to carry his pack an extra mile. In 25 years of being Dean of Kings, I have yet to meet a Roman legionary uh, on Waterloo Bridge asking me to carry his pack. So I've got a problem because there's a clear moral and ethical command in the New Testament telling me what to do, but it doesn't happen very often. And when I go to Tesco's, uh, St. Paul tells me exactly what I should do about meat offered to idols. Now, no matter how good the labelling is, I have noticed that Tesco's and Sainsbury's don't tell you whether the meat's been offered to idols or not. Whereas in Corinth, in the first century, that was a really important question. But because King's is such an important university in covering all these things, I'm very often going across to a meeting about what should we do about stem cell research, or where are we uh, with... with uh, nuclear, biological, chemical weapons, and so on. And if I look in the Bible for an answer to those questions, well, what do we do uh, 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 about uh, designer babies or all these sorts of things? There aren't... I can't sort of turn to a page and read the answer off. And so, going back to my description of the American TV evangelist, simply saying the Bible says actually doesn't give us the answer to most of the important questions that we are waiting for, uh, that we are working on today. So that's why we have to find a method. It would be fine if, we, if the Bible came with an index that said, for nuclear research, see X. <laughs> but it doesn't work like that. And one of the ways in which I'm trying to bridge this gap between the modern culture and the ancient culture is to say, if I go to the Bible and say, what does it say about executive bonuses? The answer is not a lot. But if I say, as I did just now, if I put, type in the word money, or rich, or poor, or poverty, or gold, silver, copper, suddenly all these verses start coming up on my computer search. And as I said, when you do that, you discover that there are tw twice as many verses mentioning that uh, area of money, wealth, poverty, than there are mentioning the word love in Jesus and the Gospels. The other thing is if you stop your average person on Waterloo Bridge and ask them what they think of Jesus, they will say that he was one of the great ethical teachers of the human race, you know, along with Socrates and Buddha and the winner of the X Factor and people like that. Um, well, I think that's another kind of mistake because actually um, Jesus was not an ethical teacher. Socrates was, certainly, and it's arguable about Buddha. I'm not going to comment on X Factor. Um, but Jesus would not have understood if you had said you're an, uh, you're an ethical teacher. He was a preacher. He came out of the desert, wild and hairy. Well, no, wild and hairy was more his cousin John, I suppose, a bit like Michael Palin at the start of Monty Python, you know. It's the kingdom of heaven. Um, but what Jesus was doing was proclaiming that the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God, was at hand. And he was doing that with his words, his teaching, and he was doing it in his action. 
And that was primarily hanging out with all the wrong sort of people, with the poor and the marginalised and women and non-Jews and so on. So the kind of historical analysis that we can do on the Gospels, which is the same as we do on any other ancient documents, give us a starting point about Jesus' deeds and his words. And secondly, I've already said that the Bible is not a book. It's a collection of writings. And it's not a book of ethics. And what's quite interesting is that actually in the 27 books of the New Testament, not one of them is actually written in the genre of an ethical treatise. There were lots of ethical treatises and ethics books being written in the ancient world. None of the books of the Bible have the format or the genre of an ethical treatise. But that's not to say that there aren't huge amounts of ethics in the Bible. It's just that we have to find a way of getting it out. And uh, Claire kindly mentioned at the beginning uh, my work on genre. What kind of thing are we talking about? Is, um, is it a play? Is it a myth? Is it history? Is it legend? And so on. And if we're going to take both the words and the deeds into account, we must use narrative and stories. The obvious way to look for an ethics instruction is to look for an imperative, thou shalt not, or thou shalt. And you might know the, uh, the fact that the rabbis are very fond to point out that there are 635 commands in the Torah, 365 thou shalt nots. There's a thou shalt not for every day of the year, and, and about 200 and something uh, thou shalts. Um, but if, if you just look at the imperatives of the teaching, you miss out on all the narrative and the story. And Jesus was a fantastic teacher, whatever you think about him. His stories, you know, passed down to, through the last 2,000 years when we all know the prodigal son or the lost sheep and so on. But how do we take his narrative and the stories in, into account? So if this is all true, we need a clear methodology that will stop us doing the kind of pick a verse at random, or stop us doing the American TV evangelist who just says the Bible says and then hits you with it, um, but to find a way of actually making it relevant and useful. And, and Claire also kindly referred in my introduction to uh, my work on genre. That was actually my doctoral work, um, and it was published originally by Cambridge 25 years ago, a second edition in 2004, and this week, um, that rather wonderful thing on the right has just been published and I'm off to America for a conference uh, next week, uh, please God, um, to discuss um, the, the book in the 25th anniversary edition because there's been an awful lot of debate about it uh, since, um, since I wrote it. I, I, I thought I'd do a little introduction to the 25th anniversary book and it turned out to be 150 pages because I found 200 books since the year 2000 that were debating and arguing with my material that I had to pick up and make use of. But the conclusion, after all that work, as one of my friends said, Richard Burge has proved that the Gospels are about Jesus. Uh, uh, um, and what I was, that means is that I was trying to argue that the genre, the literary format of the Gospels, is a form of ancient biography. They are not the form of an ethical rule book. They're not the form of an ancient history. And they're not the form of an ancient legend. They are written in exactly the kind of way in which lives of famous men and women were written in the ancient world. The problem is they don't look very much like biography to us. 
because our understanding of biography, post-Marx, post-Freud, and all of that is all about the individual and the personality. And it's arguable that the ancients didn't have anything like our idea of the individual and the personality. They were much more interested in the character or the type of a person. And it's often a portrait of a person through their deeds and their words with an extended account of their last days and their death. Um, and there was no idea that you could write a biography as somebody was going along, because actually, until somebody died, you didn't know how they had lived. And often, a third of the book is taken up with the last days, because that's when they give their best teaching or their famous last words on the manner of their death to see whether they died as they lived. And of course, we find that exactly the same in the Gospels. So the question then became, what difference does this biographical genre of the Gospels make for how we read them today? Um, as some of my friends said to me, okay, Richard, stop hitting us over the head with that very big book. You've proved the Gospels are about Jesus. Well done. Uh, so what? Um, and I found it was really interesting that the early church kept four portraits of the story of Jesus, not one single version. You know the story of Henry Ford, you know, you were producing the Model T. You can have any colour you like as long as it's black. Uh, I've been using that for a very long time, and only recently has somebody said to me, well, there was a good economic reason for that, because black paint dried in two days, and all the coloured paints dried in four days. And that's why he was churning them out so fast. It was, you can have any colour you like as long as it's black. Well, I think God's a bit more interesting, because he made a thing called the rainbow. Um, but... The four Gospels and narratives are traditionally seen through the four traditional symbols of the human face, the lion, the ox, and the eagle. And so I was working on this as a way of talking about a narrative approach for a visual culture. And that book came out in, in, uh, shortly after the PhD and has just recently been republished as a classic edition. And as Claire also said, here, here's a picture of me giving a copy of it to Pope Francis. Um, and uh, there were, my friends were thinking, it's very funny, you know, why, why, why does the Pope give somebody who proves the Gospels are about Jesus a prize? Um, um, in the citation, it was because I'd re-established the indissoluble connection between Jesus and the Gospels, which was something that in particular Pope Benedict, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, felt that when he was doing his theological studies in, in Germany in the middle of the 20th century, uh, the more he did of the studies, the less he saw of Jesus. It sort of disappeared into the... He writes very movingly of the figure of Jesus disappearing into the mist and being left with the great high exalted Christ of the church. But what had happened to the, the human figure? And so therefore, for me, it's absolutely crucial to take this biographical genre seriously for New Testament ethics, which is why I did the book that Claire mentioned, uh, Imitating Jesus on the Ethical Material in the New Testament, that was used at the Lambeth Conference. And I've already said that we must look at Jesus not as an ethicist, but as a preacher. He's a prophet of what we call in the trade restoration eschatology, which is just a technical term for the idea that at the end of all things, which is what eschatology means from the Greek eschaton, end, God is going to restore the kingdom. When will you restore the kingdom to Israel, O Lord? And he's... he's He's a prophet of that, saying God is at work here and now, rather than a moral teacher providing ethical maxims. And there were two a penny on the street corners throughout the Greco-Roman world, sophists, cynics, uh, peripatetics, Socratics, and so on. 
And so that means, sorry, wrong button, uh, that means that the Gospels as a form of ancient biography means we have to consider both Jesus' ethical teaching and his practice. Uh, Luke says, I wrote, in my first book, I wrote all about Jesus began to do and to teach his words and his deeds. And that these lectures are therefore working our way, as we said, towards uh, a follow-up book on the ethical dilemmas. And what I've been trying to do is to work on a method in our madness, to try to find some kind of methodology. And I've ended up with this, which is the Milky Way. <laughs> um, what I want to do is to begin where it all started with Jesus' words and deeds. Uh, we use the triple tradition as a historical basis. That means if it's in three of the Gospels, um, uh, it's more, more likely to be true than if it's just in one and all those sorts of things and using all sorts of historical critical tools. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I come from the West Country and from the, where uh, my parents' home was, there was a place where the trawlers would come up and dump great big piles of shimmering fish and the thing you had to do was then sort them out into the different sorts of fish on, on, uh, on ice. And the idea is if you run a dragnet or you trawl through the Gospels to collect as many stories and examples as possible. Uh, so I've already mentioned the way of using the, the Gospel programs or the biblical programs on my computer to search for all the word, verses with the word money or love and also things like belt, purse, copper, gold, silver, and so on. And then you have to do an exegesis, an interpretation of the relevant text. And my dragging my dragnet through the New Testament has produced about 200 verses. And what you do with... Um, I, I was originally trained uh, in part as a maths teacher as well as a classicist. And when you want to um, get a lot of data, you plot it on a, what they call a scattergram, which is where you put all the data on the, onto a chart... And when, of course, when I was doing this back in the dinosaur days of the 1980s, I was still doing it with protractor and ruler and slide rule and all of that. Uh, now, uh, Excel will do it for you straight away <laughs> on your laptop. But the idea is you put all the, all the results on, on a graph and you can see if you can find the best line fit. In the same way that when we look up into the sky, the night sky, there are stars everywhere, but there is this clear ribbon that we see, which is the, the, the galaxy, um, the side of the, uh, the angle of the galaxy, where the stars are thickest, tracing a line through. So the question is, how do we find that line? How do we find that uh, thick line that's fitting through uh, the best of Jesus' material? And then uh, looking at the four different genres of ethical material, I've said that none of the books are ethical material, and that what ethicists often look for are commands, the rules, the thou shalt's and the thou shalt not's. So if Jesus says, sell your possessions, that's a pretty clear ethical instruction. It's, in, it's, it's, it's a command. But then there are lots of things that are not in the imperative. So there are things like principles. Can we identify um, uh, you know, the principle of love or, or whatever? And then I... I because told the story just now that ends with that famous line from the, um, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, go and do likewise. There are lots of stories that are told, and how do we use that story? How do we go and do likewise? Um, and in that case, of course, it's the, the outsider 
who spends his money and his time and uh, binds up the person's wounds, takes them to the nearest inn, like as a hospice, or what we would now call a hospital, and pays the innkeeper to look after him. And what is the overall biblical worldview in terms of the great story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? And then we can apply, once we've, once we've got all this material, we can then apply it within the context of what I like to call an inclusive community, uh, which ensures that the voices of those most affected are actually heard. Most of the substantial work on imitating Jesus and why this project's a good 10 years behind schedule is that I was very privileged to work with our um, uh, patron of the Alumni Association from King's Archbishop Desmond Tutu in South Africa. Um, in, and in 1998, I was at the Truth and Reconciliation working with Archbishop Desmond and listening to all the terrible stories and so on. And I got interested in the question of how did the Dutch Reformed Church come up with uh, a, the doctrine of apartheid as a biblical doctrine? And I just assumed that they were hypocrites. But when I started meeting Afrikaners and going to their houses and their churches and being prayed for them, and when you've been prayed for by an Afrikaner, I remember the... They're rather big and bulky people that beat us at rugby and cricket and things. You know you've been prayed for. <laughs> and I suddenly found that you know, they knew God better than I did, and they read their Bibles better than I did, and they had incredible universities at Bloemfontein and Stellenbosch and Pretoria uh, that studied the Bible. So how did they come up with this? And I, I asked them regularly this question, and they said, because in the end we wouldn't listen to the voices of the people that disagreed with us. We, we, we saw that Bayer's now day, we, we shut him up within our own church. We called Desmond Tutu a heretic or an atheist. We wouldn't listen to the World Council of Churches. And on the other hand, he said, if you get a bunch of elderly white Afrikaners in a room reading the Bible together and they come up with an idea that benefits elderly white male Afrikaners, well, there's not really a surprise, is it? And if you get a bunch of men in the church who wear pointy hats deciding whether they're going to let women into their golf club as bishops... It took an awful long time, and only actually when we actually got some women into the House of Bishops, even though they weren't yet bishops, uh, for them to be able to hear that point of view. You have to be prepared to hear the point of view of people who read the Bible differently from you, or who interpret it differently, to challenge and stop you just coming up with a self-serving reading. And it's at that point that we also need to use all the other skills. The biblical scholar is just one among things like the, the tradition of the church, the reason, human experience, as well, of course, of all the insights of modern science, psychology, and so on. So it's quite a long and complicated process, uh, which is why I haven't written the book yet, boss. Um, so let's, uh, 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 there isn't going to be time to take you through all four stages uh, I, I decided to have mercy on you. Um, so I'm going to give you a, a, a vignette of stage one and uh, of, of, of the final stage. So, as I've said, the whole thing really starts with Jesus. If there wasn't a, of the figure of Jesus wandering around and teaching, we wouldn't be here having this kind of conversation. So what do we know about Jesus' words and teachings, particularly those that are in Mark, which most scholars think are the, is the first gospel, and in the triple tradition, i.e. that it occurs also in other Gospels. Well, one of the first things is the well-known parable of the sower 
I'm afraid I had all the medics with me all morning. I was halfway through producing a nice set of slides with old master's pictures of, uh, of, the, of the sower going to sow the seed. And I think it was on the early version I sent you, Claire, which is why I'm glad we got the right one. Um, um, but um, time ran out, so I'm afraid you've just got some words. But you, we all know the story. Um, it should be really the parable of the soils, because the sower goes out and chucks the seed around on, on four different sorts of soil, as I'm sure you, you, you remember. And some falls among weeds and is strangled. Some falls on rocks and springs up and then withers in the sun. Some falls on the path and is taken away by the birds of the air. And some fall on good soil and bring uh, a multitude of, of grains of wheat in response. And there's a, one of the great things about Jesus is that his parables were, were wonderful stories uh, like almost like a joke, and the trouble with you know, the worst thing to do with a joke is to try to explain it. Um, and you can see that even the early church started to try to explain Jesus' stories. And in Luke, sure enough, where it says, "Oh well, the seed that fell among the thorns and is choked, well, that is the riches and wealth of this world, is what chokes the seed." And so we we see already. Um, the, what, when Jesus was just telling us a nice story about what happened, and I'm sure there were plenty of, of farm, first century farmers who listened and thought, you're that laddie, I understand, so I got a field just like that. Uh, <laughs> whereas um, already it's being interpreted. You know, the birds of the air of the devil comes and takes the seed away. But interestingly, it's riches and wealth is the thing that prevents the growth. And then there's this uh, rich young man who appears in uh, all three Gospels, he's described slightly differently. Um, and uh, he comes to Jesus and says, you know, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, how about keeping the commandments? That would be a good start. <laughs> and he says, well, actually, I've done that since I was a child. And it, the, um, Jesus says, well, yes, you lack one thing. Go sell what you have. Give it to the poor and come and follow me. And it's too much. And he goes away. And it's one of those very rare stories. It actually says, and as he went, Jesus looked at him, or gazed upon him with love. It's an interesting kind. It's a rare, rather odd Greek word that's used there. Looking on him, Jesus loved him because of the sorrow of this guy saying, I, I can't do that. And then we have the story, and I, I did get some nice old masters of all these, but never mind. Um, that's the kind of thing that Lord Henry's or Alistair McGrath tended to do, my pre great predecessors. Um, of the poor widow with her might, you know, the one who put in a very, very small coin, as opposed to those who were putting, you know, vast bags of gold in or their checkbook or whatever. Um, and uh, in Mark and Matthew, Jesus points out that what she's given is more than the big one. Matthew's account, uh, she gave her all, everything she had. And then there's that very odd story where Jesus is anointed by a woman, and it occurs in all four, in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John. References are there, and they'll be on the transcript when we can get it typed up. Um, there's a bit of confusion as to which end of Jesus is anointed, by whom, and with what <laughs> in the stories. Sometimes it's the head, sometimes it's the foot, sometimes uh, it, it, it's with an ointment or, or, or with uh, um, tears. Uh, and whether, which, whether it's Mary and which Mary and so on. But it leads to an argument 
um, in which Judas says this is a waste of money. And Jesus says, the poor will always be with you and you can help them any time you like. Is That sounds like an offhand comment in one way, or is it a statement of reality that we know, even in our society today, we've now got to the stage where um, about 60 people own half the resources of the planet. It used to be four or 500. You would get onto one jumbo jet, the people who own half the planet. Then it came down to a double-decker bus. Now it's one of the single-decker buses that goes up and down Hoburn. 60 people have the same resources as the whole rest of the planet. And the stories we see time after time after time from the Ethiopia famine uh, right the way through to all the natural disasters. So those are key stories that appear in all the Gospels regularly about um, uh, Jesus telling these stories uh, and warning about the dangers of riches and stressing on poverty. What's different about the way in which I'm trying to interpret the Bible is that I'm also, I've talked about looking at words and deeds, looking at narrative as well as teaching. And it's quite interesting because Jesus is described as an artisan, hotectone. Uh, you will know that as carpenter. Uh, but it doesn't actually mean carpenter. It means uh, somebody who worked with their hands. Um, and, and, of course, the chief tectone is the architectone, architect. Um, and uh, so it's, he's a craftsman. May have been a carpenter. Um, uh, and then we asked the question, was Jesus himself poor? Or was it actually this the family business, Joseph and Sons? Uh, and Zephyrus, a great, important Greek, Hellenistic, Roman city, was up the road from Nazareth. If uh, Joseph and Sons wanted to sell the chairs they were making, it would be to Zephyrus that they would go. And uh, in the film The Miracle Maker, the animated puppet version film of Jesus sponsored by Mel, Mel Gibson, uh, which I was uh, an advisor to, the film begins with Jesus carving the, the carvings on the front of the theatre in Sepphoris. Um, and then hands in his tools and says, actually, I've, I have other work to do. And off he goes. And it's interesting that it's about 30 when he does that. Well, obviously, as the firstborn child uh, of Mary... And Joseph, uh, certainly Mary and Joseph had many other children other than Jesus. Um, this isn't the place to get into arguments about the virgin birth, probably. <laughs> um, well, Joseph, as so often would have been the case, was probably older than Mary. He, he's, he's still around when Jesus is 12, because we, we have the story of them in the temple. But then he disappears. And that would be quite common, an older man with a younger wife. And it would be the eldest son who would then take over. And he would have to run the family business, look after his mother, and make sure that his brothers and sisters were married off. And only when he'd done that, because that would be the father's duty, but he would be doing it, would he then be free to look after himself, find himself a wife or whatever. And so if Joseph dies, this is all speculation, but if Joseph dies in Jesus' teens, and he's got several younger brothers and sisters, that's why takes him to his late 20s to 
make sure his mum's okay, look after all that. And then he gives it all up for a lifestyle of natural, of itinerant renunciation. The amazing thing about Zephyrus, this great city I was saying about, is it's not mentioned anywhere in the Gospels. Jesus appears to turn his back on the great centre of industry and commerce and heads off through the agricultural lands to the Sea of Galilee and working around fishermen. When people say they want to follow him, he says, well, foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nest, but I've got nowhere to lay my head. And when he calls his disciples, he calls them to leave everything and follow him. And it's quite interesting that, I mean, I think Jesus is a bit like the queen, because he doesn't ever seem to carry money. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever tried to ask Her Majesty for a fiver. Um, the Pharisees come up and say to Peter, does your teacher pay the temple tax? This is the tax that everybody had to pay throughout the Roman Empire to the temple of Jupiter in Rome. But there was an exemption for the Jews who obviously would have found that blasphemous. So they would pay the, 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 tax, the tax to the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, you know, uh, should this, who, who needs to pay for their, something of their father? The sons are free. The workers will be, may be paying, but the sons are free from such taxes. And then he says to Peter, well, on the other hand, since they want the money, go fishing. And Peter goes fishing, presumably thinking he'll have to go and catch a fish and sell a fish. And, of course, the story is he pulls out a fish and it happens to have in its mouth uh, the coin that is needed for the tax. And then there's that extraordinary story of render to Caesar, it gives us the English render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's, um, which is often used, and, uh, and in the work that I've been doing in investment in the city and so on, is saying, well, okay, we can divide the world into bits that are Caesar's and the bits that are God's. But actually, we're in the middle of the temple, and what, he's not being asked, do you fill in your tax returns? Uh, the word census gives us the word census. It's the poll tax. And that was just as unpopular in Roman days as it was in the 17th century and as it is today. And they know that they've got him either way. Because if he says they shouldn't pay the tax, he's guilty of uh, sedition against Rome. And if he says they should pay the tax, he's going to upset everybody because everybody hates it. And he says, get me a coin. He doesn't have one in his pocket. And they go and bring him a silver denarius. And he simply says, whose inscription is this and whose image? And of course, the image would have been an image of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription would have said, Tiberius Caesar, D.V. Filius, son of God. And that is blasphemous, to have a coin like that in the temple with a graven image to a, somebody who claims to be a god. And the Greek word is very strong, apodidomi give back, and this is what render, and the English word rendition, means. Give Caesar's filthy stuff back to Caesar. You shouldn't have that in the temple. Give to God what belongs to God. I don't think it's a 50-50 deal for Jesus there. Um, and then moving on to his example, and I'm going to need to just speed up a little bit here. Um, there is obviously the story of uh, the mon Jesus and the money changers in the temple, and it's a debate as to what was going on. Was this about commerce in the temple, 
Or was it about money changing to get rid of the blasphemous coins and take good, honest shekels? There is the discussion with Judas at the Last Supper about the poor that we've already talked about, um, and, the, and the comment that Judas held the common purse. Um, and so the idea of, of, of the disciples is having a, a, a purse together. What is interesting is that Jesus is also, uh, for a penniless wandering ascetic, regularly invited to dinner by rabbis and Pharisees and religious leaders. Um, because in those pre-television days, the whole point about a dinner was that you would then have a debate. And our word symposium, uh, which we often use as an academic thing, actually means drinking together. <laughs> um, and so Jesus would be invited by a rabbi or a, a Pharisee who would then make, say after the dinner, well, sing for your supper, you know, tell us a story or let's have a debate or an argument and so on. And it's also clear that his followers included a mixture of rich and poor. Interestingly, in Luke chapter 8, it describes some of Jesus' women disciples, uh, which includes the wife of one of Herod's cabinet ministers. And they are helping to fund the mission. And so he, he has an inclusive community. Matthew appears to have been a tax collector who would have been seen as a, uh, as a collaborator with the Romans. And yet uh, um, Simon the Canaanian uh, was uh, described as one of the sort of, well, what do you call them? Terrorist or freedom fighter? Depends on which way you, take, you, you look. But the Canaanians were the group that were trying to get rid of Rome. Interesting to have both of them as disciples. So to sum up, go back to my Milky Way, we're talking about the best line fit. And I'm very keen on the work of a French Jesuit uh, scholar, Guillemet, who said that Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry gives us a direction, not directives. And remember I said right at the beginning that Jesus is more of a preacher than he is of an ethical teacher. And it's a direction to follow rather than a set of directives to obey. And the clear direction, the Milky Way line through all of, all of this material, is you cannot serve both God and mammon. And there's this almost personification of money, wealth, and power. Um, Warren Carter, a New Zealand um, uh, New Testament scholar, translated as you cannot serve God and materialism. And I think that's a really interesting translation. So, that, so stage one is to say, okay, we can establish a clear direction of travel in Jesus' deeds and words. Stage two traces all that through the rest of the New Testament, uh, Paul and all the epistles, and I'm going to spare you that. And stage three traces it through all the different genres of the New Testament. And then it seems to me that's when the fun really starts. Because if, as I have been saying... Uh, Jesus' deeds and words give us a direction of travel. The direction is one about taking up the cross, denying the self and following him, which is costly, which gives you some kind of content, but it doesn't answer the questions when I'm going into the seminar room at King's about executive bonuses or whatever. I've also said that in order to avoid deceiving yourself or coming up with a self-serving kind of reading, you need an open and inclusive community, and that's what we had in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where terrorists or freedom fighters, police or 
um, uh, those who were involved in rebelling against it, victims and bombers had to listen to each other's experiences. How do we let the voice of the outsiders be heard? How, when we're discussing climate change, do we listen to the voices of the developing world and the poor around the Pacific Rim? And that means that actually we need to get a group together that includes bankers and Occupy protesters, that includes uh, those who are protesting against global capitalism and those that are actually promoting global capitalism. We need to have the poor at the table with the same rights as the rich. Uh, um, and that is incredibly difficult to do. And then you can start to say, okay, let's talk about the current issues that are facing us in the light of this clear direction of travel. And I'm just going to list them now because uh, you know them and time is tight. But one, obviously, is a personal attitude to money and possessions. Should we, when Jesus says, sell everything and follow me, what would happen if we all did it? Um, there, that actually happened in early Jerusalem. They, they had a communal living. And then when the famine came, they were all hungry. Uh, what does this say then about giving and generosity? What does it say about things like when Jesus says, don't take any thought for tomorrow, well, does that mean we shouldn't have life assurances or mortgages or savings? Um, do you trust in God or trust in money? What's the role of taxes in actually helping the poor and so on? And they've got those sorts of questions on the one side, and then on the other, the so-called prosperity gospel that came originally out of America, but is very much across Africa and increasingly here, uh, especially in East London. Uh, you, know, you know, the idea that uh, if you do the right thing for God, God will, will give you uh, finance and so on. And then if we come then to other questions like work and employment, we have to recognize, of course, that society is very different from Jesus' day. Jesus was working in a mainly agricultural and fishing community, not even going into the economics of the town of Sepphoris. And I talked about cultural relativism, about bridging the gaps between the cultures. Does what his teaching in that period, how does that apply to the different sorts of worlds? I mean, slavery in the first century was very prominent. It was a different kind of thing from the slavery of the slave trade between Britain and America and Africa in the 17th and 18th century. And more people are enslaved in our world today than ever before. Um, the whole attitudes towards work and employment and unemployment. Jesus is telling stories about managers exploiting the workers and not paying them their wages from what are fair wages. Well, and that takes us straight into the discussions that we have about the living wage and the London living wage. And then there is the question I mentioned of CEOs' excessive bonuses. What is excessive and what is a high level of pay? Uh, the Church of England last year voted against the package for the um, senior management of two-thirds of the companies within which they are invested because they felt the package was an ex excessively above the average wages being paid in the company. And we began with the pictures of Occupy. Well, is there any legacy of that left? And, of course, one has to be realistic. Jesus lived in a subsistence economy, uh, bartering, local marketplace, and so on. And, you know, 2,000 years of economic history in three sentences. I mean, we, you can trace it through from the Roman Empire to subsistence in the Dark Ages, feudalism, the rise of socialism and communism and capitalism, 
Do you go with an Adam Smith and laissez-faire approach, or do you want to regulate society? The 80s and the 90s with Thatcherism and Reaganomics, and that are still living with the consequences of the 2008 uh, crisis. And what is the responsibility of bankers in that? So one of the ways in which I've been involved with this is to actually the whole issue about ethical investment. For the last 10 years, I've been deputy chair of the Ethical Investment <coughs> Advisory Group for all the pension funds and other funds of the Church of England. It's about 10 billion in assets. And this was started by my predecessor, Richard Harries, when he was dean of King's College London, and he was arguing that the church should not be invested in South Africa. And the church commissioners said, we have a legal duty to maximize our investments for the benefit of the pensioners. Therefore, it would be illegal for us not to invest in South Africa. And it went all the way to the High Court and came up with the famous Oxford judgment, which actually produces now ethical investment funds that actually say, no, you can take ethics into account. So there's things like the negative side of, of uh, ethical investment. Are there areas that you want to not invest in? Weapons. So it's okay for the country to defend itself, but is it okay to have nuclear weapons, biological weapons, landmines that kill indiscriminately and so on? What about alcohol, gambling, all those sorts of things? And then there's the positive side of actually using the investments in a company to bring about change. So we've been working very closely with major, all the major extractives, um, energy companies uh, and mining companies about uh, the impact they're having on the environment. And we're expecting them to, get, to clean up their acts literally under all the threat of disinvestment. And how do we do that with a theological basis? And then lastly, of course, there is the whole global context of tra debt, trade, and raw materials. I've mentioned the imbalance between 60 people owning half of the planet. Oh, where is the idea of aid? And does aid keep people poor? Should we be looking more at international taxes? What about the de Millennium Development Goals? The rise now of multinational companies who's, uh, like Amazon and everywhere else that we've been talking about, who are bigger than any nation state and manage to find all sorts of ways, uh, allegedly, to uh, minimize their tax responsibility in certain countries. Um, we, we, I began with the pictures of the Occupy movement. Is there any effect of that? And of course, if anybody has any advice for Theresa May about what to do about Brexit, I'm sure she'd be very grateful. So to sum up, I'm using a four-stage methodology. I will be doing exactly the same with the topics in February and April, um, which are the life issues and the sexuality issues. But there is this clear direction of travel from Jesus' teachings about a lack of concern for money, instructions about giving wealth away, that he lives it out himself as a wandering ascetic. He renounces it, and yet there are tax collectors and wealthy women among his disciples. In stage two, which we weren't able to, to cover, you will see how Matthew tries to amplify it and handle it in daily life, uh, whereas Luke really emphasizes it. Paul similarly warns about wealth and, collect, uh, and is busily taking up the collection for the churches. And yet, he is clearly dependent on mixed congregations with richer houses in his mission and his ministry in the book of Acts.
In terms of the different sorts of ethical material, there are lots of direct imperatives, commands, sell everything, come and follow me. And there are principles about not trusting in wealth, but in God, you can't serve God and mammon. There are appeals to Jesus' own practice, I have nowhere to lay my head, backed up by a symbolic biblical worldview of the God who owns everything and yet humbles himself to become a slave and to die upon a cross. So the same message comes across in all of the genres. And then we have to be honest and say that the church, certainly since the time of the Emperor Constantine, possibly even before that, has struggled to actually apply this to real life. The whole development of the religious orders with their vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience was a way of saying, you can't actually keep Jesus' teachings in the real world, and you can, all you can do is, is retreat from the world into a religious community and where you are supported within that. There's the debate, 2,000 years debate, about the acceptance of usury, which was completely banned, and then the beginnings of acceptance of interest at the Reformation, upon which the whole uh, global financial system is built. And so even though Jesus' words and deeds cannot be taken straight off the page on a one-to-one -one correspondence with the issues facing us, I want to suggest that they still pose an enormous challenge to us in the contemporary ethical challenges we face in this entire area of money, root of all evil, or our salvation.